Welcome to Sourced, a podcast about the art of audience engagement at a time when competition for attention has never been greater. What works, what doesn't work, and what's changing. Sourced is brought to you by 55 Comms. We've been telling stories, learning about audiences, and helping clients for more than 25 years. You'll hear from a range of guests, including our clients and old friends. Like all parts of mainstream media, the world of sports reporting has been transformed. It doesn't seem that long ago that only a handful of top-level matches would be broadcast each weekend. You had to listen to the radio to follow other games. Now we have mega broadcast deals that mean games can be watched anywhere, anytime. We have social media that has drastically altered the way athletes are reported on. And we have digital media impacting on print and television news bulletins. So, how has this affected sports reporting? We invited three of Brisbane's best-known sports reporters into our offices at 55 Comms to chat about this changing world. Pat Welsh first reported for Channel 7 in 1975 and he remains at the front line of the city's sports coverage, still a key part of the 7 newsroom while also hosting a sports breakfast show for SEN Radio. Pat's covered the lot. Too many events to list here. That's the same for Robert Craddock. Crash is simply one of the best sports writers Queensland has known. He was the leading cricket writer in the country for many years, but his work as the Courier-Mail's chief sports writer, Fox Sports analyst and radio commentator showcase his skill across all sports and all mediums. Peter Bedell is one of the most fearless rugby league reporters the game has known. His work with the Courier-Mail as part of the News Corp network and across Fox Sports reach huge audiences. Since Pete started as a sports writer in 1998, he has specialised in league while also covering Australian cricket tours. My name is Michael Crutcher. Welcome to this edition of Sourced. Well, welcome Crash, Pete and Paddy. Great to have you here today. Really looking forward to this chat because who knows where it may go as we discuss all things in the world of sports writing. And we'll start with a really easy first question. What's a typical day for you if there is such a thing in sports journalism? Pat, you might start with this because your day is uh, long and, and interesting, but what's a typical day for you? Mm, well, unlike the, uh, the two gentlemen to my right, I haven't mastered the dark arts of technology yet. So I actually go into the office. So, um, I'm not sure why, but I, I took up the offer from SEN to start to do breakfast radio. Uh, so I'm doing breakfast radio, so I pick up uh, our respected wicketkeeper at about half past five of the morning, Ian Healy. We go into the SEN office, we do about 45 minutes of prep and do two hours on air between 6.30 and 8.30. The limousine service then drops Mr Healy home and I progress to Mount Cutha for the rest of the day. But it, it's changed for me. I don't go on the road anywhere near as much. Uh, we have, you know, a guy who speci- specifically does the rugby league and Benny Davis tends to do most of the AFL and, and cricket for that matter. So I tend to just up there producing and putting the, the little bits and pieces together and negotiating with the rest of the networks, particularly Sydney, Melbourne, on, on what's what's happening. So that's pretty much my work day. Three days a week I read the news. 
So we do a four o'clock bulletin, I do the Gold Coast bulletin and I do the six o'clock bulletin. Done by seven, home by 7.20, Forex Gold in hand by 7.25. <laughs> Good day. Mm. Uh, Peter Bedell, what about you? Yeah, I think one of my one of the reasons I love this job, boys, is uh, I think it's so varied for me in my work day. So sometimes you wake up in the morning and crash while test to this as a print journal. You don't know where the day will take you. I mean, the only con- one fixture for me is that my missus is blowing up at me in the morning to get the, <laughs> sk- the kids' school lunches done. And once the peanut butter sandwiches are out of the way, it's just it's open-ended. But... Look, I think for me, look, generally I try... It depends on what the news of the day could be, but a story can break at 7am and I'm straight onto the computer filing. And other times it can be, OK, I've got to go to Broncos training if they're training that day at, say, 10 o'clock and then I'll go from there. But generally, um, depending on how the gravity of a story, whether something's breaking, I I always... um, try and have my day done by sort of 5pm generally but it can also there's been nights where I've filed at 10pm um, earlier this year the state of origin three story broke at 8.30pm at night and I was still filing at 11pm so they're the longer days but then then, then there's the weekends where I cover a Broncos game and you can be home by midnight or one o'clock in the morning for a state of origin game so there can be long days but then there's other days where not much happens and I can be done by three or four and go and play golf like Paddy Welsh and <laughs> get about 20 over so um, yeah so it, it varies but that's what we love about it it's, it's unpredictable what about for you Crash? yeah I find that uh, that's one big change in the industry in the old days you'd get in at about 10 o'clock and you wouldn't have to notify your sports set until about 2 o'clock. What are you even thinking about, you know? Now, 10, 10 o'clock in the morning, you better have your, uh, your memo ready. And, uh, but when I was on tour of the Cricket Rider, there's one sound that still haunts me, and that is when they used to throw the papers against the door, mm. the hotel door in the morning, that thump. <laughs> when it happens to me now, I'm away with the kids, I go... <laughs> <laughs> because you'd pick up the opposition paper and you would unravel it gently and have a look at the back, oh, you know, or, or something you've missed or whatever. Mm. But social media now, like first thing I do in the morning, I have a look at Twitter, just see if the, the world's caved in. And, and it just sort of, just by osmosis, uh, the radio here bit of social media there, the, the day seeps through you, I think, and then you, you respond to that by, as Peter said, taking it off in a different direction. But that's the joy of our job. Every day is a bit different. So people think we do the same things, but there's just always a slant. There's always a story you've never heard before. Mm. What about for you too, Pat? Because it's amazing that you started at seven in 1975. Just incredible to still be doing what you're doing now, radio as well. What Just was post it? black and white. Yeah. <laughs> you <laughs> look better, like you're better in black and white, Pat. <laughs> Actually, I've seen some of the old stuff. I did look better in black and white. <laughs> what was it like then? It was very different. I mean, particularly sports coverage of longer events like football games and cricket matches because we were still using film and big, bulky cameras. It was just, you know, these days you walk around with your phone and you've got a story if necessary. But... For example, you know, come times of budget, we'd be allowed to shoot, say, the first session and a half of a Queensland Shield game and we'd have to do it on, like, 200 feet of film. So they'd, it, it became an art form but of the cameraman button, buttoning off and buttoning on and things like that. And it was, yeah, it became very technical about how you could get it in. Then it had to go away to be processed and then come back to the station we worked on different ways of, you know, speeding it down to labs in, in on motorbikes and things like that. Eventually, we had our own lab on Mount Cuther and it became a lot easier. And then it was splice things together, you know, with the sticky tape and things like that. It was literally cutting th- pieces together. So, yeah, it was archaic. 
It really to think where we are now and what we can do now. It was just absolute primitive times. And then you were part of Sports Scene, which is, of course, such a beloved mm. show in Brisbane. What, there's nine till midday on a Sunday, wasn't yeah. it? I mean, it seems amazing now, but that show was really uh, popular. Yeah, and, and another victim of the times, because everything's national now. I mean, I would love to do a show like that, and these two guys would attest that we get more than enough local info and local characters and personalities to, for a show like that to stand up. But that just won't happen anymore, sadly. So you'd, the smaller sports don't have a window as such now for you know, in TV. And there was used to be a flow to the day, didn't there? And th- the agenda was set in the morning with, um, uh, with the papers, what was in the papers, and mm-hmm. then set again in the evening with the TV news, the sports sections. What sets the agenda now? Does that still happen or is it a constant agenda? Uh, how does that work? I've got to say, boys, I, I don't... I don't feel I ever really switch off as a person anymore. I mean, I mm. can go to bed at 10 o'clock at night and still be nervous about what could break 10 minutes later after I've hit the, hit the sack. I mean, I remember a couple of weeks ago, Greg Inglis retired in England. I was sitting up watching TV. A tweet comes through from Warrington in England that he's announced his retirement at 10.13. I jumped straight on the laptop and filed at 10. By 10.31, I had a story up online. So things just... Re- the, the immediacy now yeah. of journalism can be, can be both seductive and soul-destroying. It can be beautiful to do as a journal when you get a yarn and you can break it straight away. But I remember even as a kid, I'd, I'd, you know, say if there was a game on TV, you'd watch the State Bank big game and you had the result, I would wait until the next morning for Peter Fralingos' match report. But you had to wait 8 to 10, 12 hours to read it. Mm. Now, I'm at Suncorp Stadium filing a story. It's up online within three minutes of full time. Mm. Yeah, we... Uh, it's changed so much. In the old days when I first started, you, each state was like a different country. And I swear that the, the circulation of their papers rarely crossed the border and you found out if you were scooped about three days later. <laughs> and I often remember my old mate Paul Malone seeing him a lot of times at the files when the interstate papers arrived in the mail. He'd be opened up and he'd go, oh, ah. I said, oh, you've been done, mate? He goes, yeah. I said, what, today? He said, no, last Tuesday. <laughs> <laughs> and the pipe, that but that was the world. It right. they, they truly was like a, a different country with papers. You'd have a story big in Sydney, then it would float into Queensland three or four days later. Yeah. Photography's so different. I, when I started at Toowoomba, I remember they had the dark room there developing prints and the, the guy develop it in a faulty machine used to swear, these effing prints and all this... And so <laughs> the editor of the paper said, look, you can complain, but do not swear about the prints, you know what I mean? You, you can do anything, you can talk, you can sing. He said, oh, can I sing? <laughs> and so anyway, I heard him in there one day, the machine was acting up, and he goes, someday my prince will come. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was a great line of all time. <laughs> you can't be that front. Like, he was a really funny bloke, you know, but they were the characters of the industry when it was sort of quite slow moving. You know? yeah. But even Crush, you can tell this story best. Even with the West Indies, for example, covering a cricketer in the Caribbean, because, and you've been there, Crutch, as with the time zone factor, what was on the back page would already be superseded, Crash, wouldn't it, by what happened the next day? You were... A day late. And Mick, you know that. You would follow your story and then a day of cricket would be played and your story would come out. No cricket writers know that more than I think you were there when Brian Lara, the West Indies were four for 60 in a test and I know Malcolm Conn categorically said Brian Lara's career as West Indian captain 
is over. He was about four not out overnight, and he ended up making 150, <laughs> saving the test. So the boys spent the whole day going. But they had to sit there and watch it, knowing their reports writing him off were coming out after he'd made a century. So but they sat there going, oh, I'm not going home. I'm just going to go to Antigua and hide. <laughs> but what about that time as well? Talk about technology, but the athletes themselves... Um, how different were those athletes then in your engagement? So as reporters with athletes, pre-social media, I'm guessing, but um, Pat, I mean, you had a great friendship with Greg Norman, um, Alan Border as well. So mm. what was it like covering some of those athletes then, say, compared to now? Well, look, I, th- I just think the fundamental, um, fundamental difference now is that they are controlled by giants. So Cricket Australia, Broncos... Every word that comes out of a player's mouth is basically controlled now. So it doesn't upset their media partners or, the, or their sponsorship partners. The old days, I mean, if I wanted something from AB, you'd call AB. Mm. If I wanted something from Alf, you'd call Alf. And he said, well, look, I'm, I'm on the fifth at Indrapilly with Wendell. Um, I'll meet you at halfway when we go in for a sandwich at midday. Have your camera there. And that's how you do it. Well, to try and grab a Bronco mm. separately to do a piece the camera, and given that we're not Channel 9, um, yeah, it just doesn't happen now. So I'm sort of pleased that I worked when I did because I had a bit of a relationship with some of the best. Norman was a little bit different. I mean, the golfers are still... They're their own men and women. And once you've got a relationship... I mean, he was as big as you got. He was a global superstar. He, he could go anywhere in the world. And, uh, you know, he, he controlled who spoke to him and when they spoke to him. So I just had a good relationship with him. We just had, you know, we're a couple of Queenslanders. I've been doing stories from him when he was a little kid. So he trusted me and he let me into his sanctum. S- you can't escape without a secret shark story. Because you know? <laughs> we all, he's such a, uh, so enigmatic. Yeah, look, he was. Um, we, we were fortunate enough and I took a, a good little golf tour just, four of us, because we were with the Shark, he got us tickets to Augusta. So as we all know, the the airfares and the accommodation and getting to Augusta, that's easy. Getting through those gates at Augusta National, that's that's the hard part. So between he and Wayne Grady, they got us a couple of tickets. So I went with um, AB, uh, the late, great Dean Jones, and AB's best mate from Sydney, who is now president of the Australian Golf Club. And we went there and we, we stayed at... The on Jupiter Island, so America's most expensive zip code is where he lives, and two doors up is Tiger. Tiger wasn't there in those days, um, and uh, Nikki Price, I think, was another one of the golfers. It's about a ten-mile island, just up from West Palm, and it's just full of mansions. So we were staying in the beach house, was our allocated area. And he said, well, we'll be having a barbecue that night. So when we got over, there were two or three Ferraris in the driveway who happened to be the surgeons who'd been operating on his back. So just surreal lifestyle. Dropped the uh, carton of Grange. So he still kept the Australian wines over there. Carton of Grange, put that on the floor, knocked the top off. There's six bottles. He said, just help yourself. He said, I'm not opening that, you know. But the, the thing that struck me about the, li- the difference in lifestyles were the two kids came down. So uh, Gregory Jr., has come downstairs and they're only relatively young and they've given us the wet fish handshakes and, you know, and, and Greg said, these are friends of mine from Australia, you know, be 
and Laura was there, this, you know, so still with Laura in those days. Morgan Lee, sorry, Morgan Lee was the daughter's name. And I said, they don't seem all that happy to see us, Sharky. He said, oh, I said, there's a bit of trouble in the house. I said, well, I said, you have trouble in the house? You know, he said, well, he said, Uncle Jack's called, naturally, Jack Nicholas, and he said, um, Chicago Bulls are playing Miami Heat in Miami tonight, which is just down the road. It's a very short chopper flight. Jack's offered to land the chopper on the front yard, pick up the two kids, take them down because Michael Jordan is playing for the Bulls and Jordan's a regular visitor to Norman's place where they play golf together, you know, so they knew Jordan and they were going to play golf that night, no, play, go down to the, the game that night as guests of Jack Nicholas and sit courtside. And the Shark said, no, nah. he said, I've got a couple of very special guests from Australia, the Australian cricket captain and one of the Australian players and a mate of mine from the media, you can't go. Well... <laughs> oh, no. I thought straight away. I mean, I'm, you know, we're in the twilight zone somewhere. I mean, what 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 have we got here? We're, we're sitting why, here. Why didn't this appear in the last dance? Pat? What, can you tell this story uh, we're for episode here eleven? Sipping grains. The sharks over there cooking steaks on the barbecue. There's three back surgeons over there that are all driving Ferraris, and there's a little fat kid from Bundaberg sitting here just loving it, with neither of the Norman kids wanting to talk to me because we've cost them a game ringside at the. Miami Heat, Chicago Bulls to watch Jordan plays. Tad Frosty. I've got to say, though, boys, I, I think political red tape has ruined relationships between journalists and, and athletes today. I mean, I know the general fan will say, oh, journalists pick on sports stars, that's, they can't be trusted. Oh, I disagree with that. I mean, I started in 1998 as a journalist. I'm now here in 2021. And I can say that there's a lot of players that I would say I have a good relationship with. I mm. text them on the phone. There's stuff that they've told me in confidence I would never write as a, out of respect to them. Yeah. But I remember when I started in 1998, I rang Brad Fittler one day when he was at the Sydney Roosters and I said, Freddie, when do you finish training? Oh, mate, finish at 12 o'clock. Can I come and sit in the stands with you for an interview? Yeah, sweet, come in half an hour, no problem. These days, can you tr yeah. imagine trying yeah. to get an interview with Cameron Munster or Daly Cherry Evans just by ringing him up? Yeah. It doesn't mm. happen. That, so I, I struggle to get an interview with a Broncos rookie, let alone the captain of the Broncos. So... The, the, the giants of the sport 20 years ago were more than amenable to a chat with journalists. Mm. These days, there's so many hurdles to overcome just to get to an average player in the NRL or any other sport. Yeah. So I, I think there's, the coaches are obsessive. A lot of the clubs are paranoid about messaging. And as a journal, you've got to navigate that and, and play up through it to get the story you want. So it, that's mm. the challenge. It all right. changed in about 1995. Uh, pre that, if you're on tour of the cricket, you wanted Shane Warne, you rang his room. That's all you yeah. did, Stephen yeah. Moore. You'd go yeah. down there. And, and it wasn't always the stars, too. I remember once in India, Michael Kaspervitz was bowling, and I thought, he's really wobbling, 1998, like it was Madras humid. And he's like this. And I rang him up, and I said, I'm going to do a story. And he, and he starts giggling hysterically. And I said, what's the matter? He said, oh, I think I'm going a bit mad. It was <laughs> about 8 o'clock at night. He'd been dehydrated, and then he burst into tears and said, I don't know whether I can do this tour. He said... I was seeing two grandstands when I topped my mark for ball one. He said, we're warming up in the nets. He said, have you noticed the Indians? They're sipping tea and they come out really late. He said, we warm up. And he said, I, I, I thought I was going to die today. And so I can hear him on the phone now. This is 23 years ago. But that was the humanity you were given access to. Yeah. And the sport is richer for that sort of engagement, yeah. you felt you knew him. Once I got sent, they said, do a feature on Stephen Warren. I thought, what more? This is early in his career. Rang him up. She'd come to my room and, and there was a little girl beside his bed. Mm. 
picture. And I said, who's that? She's like, that's my foster child. She said, she has the most brutal life. I feel so sorry for her. It's on my mind all the time. And I thought, you know, that's you, you get to see that humanity, which you mm. don't see when you're there in a press conference, you know. So yeah. don't <coughs> – it's slicker now, but don't think there's any – it's any better. In Steve Waugh, in his memoirs, he wrote about you, Crash, towards the end of it, when he spoke about – wrote about journalists basically saying that he thought he was too hard on journalists in his career. When he looked back on it, he did, I think, from memory – uh, say that, said that you feign the gibbering sidekick routine. <laughs> he didn't feign it, it was true. He's a genius tugger. There and was no acting there, it was just me doing a hundred days in a row going... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He said that you'd feign the gibbering sidekick routine then pluck a story from his back pocket before he knew it. <laughs> yeah. But how would you describe those relationships? Because Stephen could be uh, difficult to deal with at times but fantastic at other times. But h- how would you look back on those er- that era for you? I felt that he was arguably the most stimulating character. And he, he'd give it to you sometimes. Like, he had this thing that journalists never watch net practice closely enough. He said, you blokes, you wouldn't know the stories you miss just by mm. sitting there and chatting to each other. So one day I thought, oh, I'm going to just watch this session and find a question from him. And I asked him later and he looked and I could tell he was thinking, hello, old Muggins is catching on here. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but he was... Um, I, I, I get it. He, he marked journalists hard, but he marked himself hard. He marked everyone. And, and I'll pay him for that. Of all the stories that you write, I always found my favourites were comparing him and Mark, the two twins. Stephen Waugh had a camera and took 100,000 shots. Mark didn't even own a camera. Mark was a mad punter. Stephen just not interested at all, you know. Stephen loved getting out on tour. Mark's famous quote, mate, you've seen one castle, you've seen them all. (laughs) (laughs) When Stephen's Mark, quite cold and... uh, Not not cold, but just just quite undemonstrative. I rang him once when Stephen's house was being circled by flames in Cronulla and the bushfire. I said, Mark, how's Stephen? He said, and I could hear Sky Channel on in the background, he said, I think he's okay. And I said, (laughs) what about the fire? And he said, oh, yeah, I heard it's closing in. I said, you're getting down there? Mate, I'm not a fireman. You know? <laughs> like, they're great characters. And, and I just think that, that once again, but it's, it's the humanity, the contrast. And on their last night, they had a beer in the bar. Uh. And I saw their father, Roger, and I said, have the last word. Because their first class averages are now 0.01 apart. In their last innings, they swapped. And Roger said, well... I've got to say this, there are times when I think there's been no two more different people in the world born and yet, of all things, there's times when I feel they're the same person. And he said, go figure. I said, I've never been able to work it out. And just, they're, they're interesting characters, Pete, you know, and, and you know, they're, they're interesting, aren't they? So how did you find that then when you, you've all got to know athletes very well, how did you find your feelings for those athletes when you covered them and I guess... What are you trying to hope for here? Are you hoping for something good to happen with someone you like or are you hoping for the best story possible, whatever that might be? Do you cheer for the person or you cheer for whatever the best story is? Oh, no, I cheered for them. Uh, you know, if, if you became close to them, I mean, obviously I'm a Broncos fan, I'm a Brisbane kid, well, Bundaberg kid, but a Brisbane kid for the last 45 years. Uh, and I came through, you know, seeing the Valleys and the Winhams play and, and the, the whole evolution I suppose into a Broncos thing so I'm an unabashed fan of the Broncos and yeah I was cheering for Elf and things like that but I was a little bit fortunate I was in an industry that 
relied on pictures. So if they did stuff up, I can say, well, here, have a look at this. You decide. <laughs> so, whereas these two guys do have to be – they do stuff, you know, where they, they have to criticise sometimes. So, um, you know, I, I have been critical at, at times, but it's a little easier for me dealing in pictures, I think. I think sometimes there's these same voices in there about barracking for the story. Like sometimes there's nothing yeah. happening in a game and you're like, oh, if someone falls over and it, you, you don't like wish you ill upon anyone, if someone breaks their leg, there's your lead, there's the story. But in terms of oh, a bit like Pat and Crash, I mean, we all grew up loving sport. I mean, that's the essence of why we got into the craft. So you, you have your heroes as a kid and, and then it there's a metamorphosis where you don't necessarily idolise them anymore because you can't if you're going to have the confidence and the gumption to deal with them. But you, you do admire their traits and admire where they mm. get to, to to reach the the peak of their sports. And I, I know, for example, in 2015 when the Broncos made the grand final, I was privately hoping the Broncos would win because I had great respect for Wayne Bennett as a coach. He came back for his first season. I thought it would have been a beautiful story, barracking for the mm. yarn, so to speak, if he achieved another fairy tale. And then they lose in that heartbreaking last minute and then goes to extra time and Thurston wins the game. But then we talk about narratives and Jonathan Thurston was an admired player and when he kicked that field goal, you couldn't... You couldn't denigrate him for that, could you? So sometimes as a journalist, you, you are, you're a human. You naturally feel mm. things for players. And sometimes it can go the other way where you might have had a run-in with someone and, and you see them stuff up on the field and you're like, well, I'm not going to shed tears here. But there's always a professional manner in which you deal with that situation. So you never, you never wish ill upon anyone. But there is always a soft spot for some athletes. Cheering for the story is interesting because here's an example, all right? 17th team competition in Brisbane. Oh, I'm yet to be convinced of the uh, of the economics and the worth of it, mm. but from a journo's point of view, mm. I'd love to cover another team. Oh, that's Bonanza, so I'm yeah. torn. I get tugged in different ways. I'm thinking mm. doesn't make sense in a lot of ways to me. Seventeen, no extra games, but guess what? But as far as cheering for a player, I think it's very much a random thing. I felt Queensland invested their whole self-esteem and judgment in Matthew Hayden when he was playing. They said, this guy's a test cricketer in the making. You've ignored him, you'll pick him, you'll be rewarded. And I felt if he failed, it brought down the whole, I'm not saying whole self-esteem of the whole state, but it was good for the state to be right on Hayden. So I, I was so pleased he succeeded. Um, I, I think also, just on a, on a different level, John Milman, the tennis player, he was Paul Malone's favourite player, the late Paul Malone. <clears throat> and when he was beaten by Roger Federer at the Australian Open, uh, I was sitting at work reading the story the next day and I got a text from someone I'd never met in my life, John Millman. And he said, oh, mate, just the talks in Melbourne that Paul's had an accident, you know. And I just thought to be that aware of someone else mm. and your great moment of triumph, I thought, oh, I don't care what he does now. I'm cheering for Millman, mm. you know. And when Scobie was in hospital, Millman, you know, was repeatedly asked to, to see him. He brought along a shirt signed by the Davis Cup team. Scobie didn't have a great relationship with Leighton Hewitt, so he said to Millman, this is lovely, John. If, uh, if Leighton hasn't signed it, I'm going to get that framed and put it up. If he has, can you throw it in the washing basket? <laughs> You know, it's just one of those lovely stories. But, yeah, so I think it's very – just – it can be random people. You know, like mm. I love, uh, Trevor Barsby, I enjoyed him. Little Cavalier batsman, you know, Lola Wiedemann, the trotting driver, has driven technically her truck to the moon and back three times, the hardest worker I've ever seen in any sport. You know, so it can be 
They're not always the champions. Mm. Actually, can I ask you this one, Pat? Because you've got this great lens. You've covered it in so many Olympics. Is there a greater parochialism when we have a national pride attached to Australia, for example, the Olympics, as opposed to just covering sports here domestically? Yeah, and, and I've, I suppose I've seen it from a, a couple of different ways where I do a lot of the track and field and have done a lot of the track and field. I didn't go this time, but I sat back and watched and I just thought at the end of it, and I, I exchanged some texts with, with Bruce at the end of it, that I thought it was a, just a breath of fresh air that the entire Australian track and field team got out there and had a red-hot crack. And I don't know whether we have always in the past. I think there's been a little bit of that attitude where, hey, I've made the Olympic team, I've got the blazer, I've got the T-shirt, the new shoes and all that sort of caper. If I get out there and run somewhere near my PB, well, it's Olympic Games for God's sake. Yeah. You're supposed to be at the peak of your powers mm. and you run a PB. And, uh, yeah, I, I thought in the past... So, yeah, look, of course you're, you're barracking for... And it was no greater than the night with Cathy. You know, mm. it was... I've never seen an event and we'll never see an event like it because, as you guys know, we go to cricket, we go to footy, we go to whatever. You sit in a stadium of 120,000 or 30,000 and they're normally divided down the middle. Not this night. There was, what, was 121,000 there or something and there was about 2,000 not barracking for Cathy Freeman. Mm. But to answer your question, Pete... Yeah, I, you know, you love the Australians to do well at those big events and I go, you know, I don't have any qualms about going in there and being as patriotic and as nationalistic as ever, but I want them to see them have a crack yep. as well. I, I want them to go well and, and, and I want them to do what, what I suppose we expect to see of them. Yeah. You know what I think too, boys, for me as a journalist, one of the great misconceptions, I believe is the general punter thinks it's easy. They think sports journalism is easy. Like, if I had a dollar for every party I've been to where someone goes, what do you do? Oh, I'm a sports journalist. Oh, you've got the best job in the world. <laughs> Mate, do you just sit there and eat pies and watch the footy? Yeah, and, and while I'm not saying it, it, is a, it is an enjoyable job, there's, like any job, there's shit days. I mean, mm. I've, had, I've had abuse, I've had death threats, I've had physical threats. And if you haven't got the, the fortitude and the conviction or courage of your convictions, you won't last in this job. Mm. And there's a lot of big personalities that you deal with. I've been abused by Wayne Bennett. I've been abused by NRL CEOs, Cricket Australia CEOs. You've got to have some self-belief and, and intestinal fortitude to deal with that. Probably the hardest story I've dealt with was the Gold Coast Titans because I was part of the reason I live in Brisbane now is because the NRL expanded the competition. They were looking for another journalist. So I moved from Sydney to Brisbane to cover the Titans as an extra team in the NRL. But then when I, in the first few years, there was whispers about them going into, into debt, that they were bankrupt, and I was being leaked all these documents to prove they were. And it's a tough thing as a journalist to write these things, and then you have people at the Titans threatening you, abusing you, and you've got to front up every day, knowing, if you know in your heart, you are reporting accurately. And above all, my overriding sentiment as a journalist is, if I was a fan, what would I want to know? Do I want to know the truth? I want to know what is happening. And that I feel we have a duty as journalists to have a finger on the pulse and inform the reader. And that's always been my, my bedrock of what I do. And so despite all the abuse, despite what I was threatened with, I felt that the Titan story was a live story, it was an accurate story, and they went bankrupt three years later. So at the end of the day, as a journalist, that's the duty you've got. There's, there's a responsibility to, I believe, report things fairly and accurately, and sometimes it can come to your personal... It can come to your personal detriment. So how do you deal with it, though? Because in journalism school, they don't teach you how to do that. You've got to have a thick skin. So mm. how do you deal with it? Resilience. 
Um, I, I've, not, I've never seen a psychologist. I've thought about it at times. I've wondered if I need to do that. Um, but I, I think th- that's what the job entails. If, you, if, you're, if you're a soft person mentally, you won't survive. You just won't. If you, but you need to, above all, like I said, my driving force is, does the reader deserve to know this? Is it accurate? If I was a fan, would I want to read it? So that's ultimately what drives me. And at the end of the day, if it means calling out people in the industry or if they're failing or whatnot, Crash has done it on cricket tours where Ricky Ponting might not score a ton for 22 innings. You've got to call it as you see it and say, does he deserve to be dropped? So I think that's, you know, but personally, Crutcher, I think it's, it's just an inner belief you have to have. You have to know if you're coming into this craft, you've got to be prepared to criticise people and you have to wear it yourself because when your work's public... Judgment will come your way, just as you judge those who are performing in the arena. So if you're going to give it, you have to take it. Yeah, Crash, you've had that. You are very humble, but those cricket tours, months at a time on the road, same hotels, same planes as the players, and you've had to write stories about guys who you think should be dropped. How do you deal with that when you're away from home yep. in that enclosed environment? Well, I am very soft uh, as, as personality-wise. So I used to have this technique where I'd imagine a flak jacket putting it on and I reckon you have five of those days a year. And if you don't, you're almost not doing your job properly. Yeah. But yeah. I'd almost yeah. mentally fasten up. But there were some tough times. I remember once in India, there was a little uh, split cabin right at the end of a compound and they said, you're one side of Mr War's the other, Steve War. And it was back in the days... He was out of form, so I was writing him off. And he would, just the start of the internet, and he would listen, he would call up the internet to get the papers at about 10 o'clock at night, and it would have this sound. It would go, we'd all remember this sound. Bing, bing, bong. (laughs) (laughs) And I didn't mind the bing, bing, bong, but when I heard the and then the silence, like that means it connected. So I'd be lying in bed, and I'd hear, come on, don't connect. Come on, come on, India. Just, <laughs> I don't mind a bit of bing, bing, boom, but none of this. <laughs> so when I heard that, I would literally pull the cur- pull the thing over my head because I thought, whoops, I've stitched him up today. <laughs> but it is funny. Like I'd hear him go to breakfast on sneak out. But some journalist, Malcolm Conn's terrific. He, 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 if he writes a hard story, he goes, he sits in the middle of the front row of the press conference, as you know, Mick. He goes to, deliberately goes to breakfast and sits there to say, any issues, boys, you know. It's a special sort of courage, you know. But I, I, one thing I do know is if you're going to be on tour with guys, you, 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 you're going to cop it in various stages. And, and you do, and it's part of the job. And, and I will say this, most players, sensitive though they can be, are pretty fair if they're having a rough trot. Like if, if you know, Matt Hayden struggled badly towards the end of his test career, but it didn't stop him from... Uh, you'd having a nice hearty hello in the morning in the foyer. What about social media? I mean, it's changed so many things in life in general. What about in sports reporting? How has social media changed it? <laughs> Don't point to me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm on Twitter under an assumed name. <laughs> and that's the only way I can keep up with it. I'm not on any accounts or anything like that. See, I am as soft as a big pussycat. <laughs> but they, they set me up. Um, uh, I forget what it is, but it's something in relation to Patrick Smith. And I said, well, he's probably the most controversial columnist in the country and you've put me under his name. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm going to cop abuse. <laughs> um, but look, I'm like these guys. I mean, that's the first thing you look at at the morning now, isn't yeah. it? To see what the latest is. Um, just the, 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 the vast difference to our lives that it, it has made. Um, 
I'm not a great admirer of it because there's so many trolls out there and I just think it's just what they can do to people's lives is just destroy them. I mean, I'm certain it's cost, you know, the suicides and things like that, not necessarily within sport, but certainly people close to sport. So, yes, there's a lot of good things about it, but there's there's a lot of menace in it as well. It's, there's a sense of foreboding, I think, for me when I when I talk about social media and you, you, you read just that. Just the crap that they write, yeah. you know. It's it's so easy. Write it under an assumed name and 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 you know just bag someone. Yeah, I think I think immediacy is the big one, isn't it, boys? I oh mean, yeah. if, if, as a journalist, so you, mm. I mean, I, I could think my day's pretty much done at three p.m. And then even a fan can put up a tweet saying yeah. Wayne Bennett's going to be sacked as South Sydney coach. And then all of a sudden you get the editors ringing, going, "Hey, Peter, you wanted this." I'm like, yeah. "What are you talking about?" Oh, someone says on social media that Wayne Bennett's going to be sacked. I'm like, "Well, is it true? Is there any veracity to it?" Yeah. But you still got to go and chase still the yarn to, it, yeah. to stack it up. So, yeah. so I just can't believe the immediacy these days. I just whereas once upon a time, I remember being on a cricket tour where. Uh, Brett Lee broke down just on the eve of the World Cup at a training session. There was only three journos at training. It happened at nine o'clock in the morning, and we could just sit on it for the whole day, filing, knowing it wouldn't get out. There was no social yeah. media at the time. There was no Twitter. We had the whole day to work on it, knowing you, beauty, our back page is sorted tomorrow. Whereas now, a story like that would be up within thirty minutes. You'd have it straight online. Then you go to the next story. Well, who's going to replace him in the team? And then yeah. you get all the fallout from it. So the, ne- the paper the next day... And probably some vision, you know, from yep. a punter that may have been watching the, you know, <coughs> with his camera there saying, yep. oh, this is Brett Lee breaking down. You won't see it on 7 or 9 or the yeah. ABC because they weren't there, yeah. you know. Yeah. yeah, and just to put in the perspective for the athlete, I actually feel for them more than even journalists. I mean, I, some of the abuse Broncos players have copped this year, they get direct messages from fans saying all sorts yeah. of horrendous things. I, I think... To be an athlete today, you have to be extraordinarily patient and resilient because some of the stuff they mm. get... You can, as a fan now, you can contact a player, direct message on social media and just say whatever you like. Uh, the thing that I was going to say, Crash, is the racism. Yeah. That, yeah. That's the saddest, saddest yeah. part about, you know, knowing quite a few Indigenous athletes and just yeah. what they... It, it's just... Oh, yeah. And it's just really... It's really awful stuff. It's yeah, just yeah. horrendous stuff what they write about them, and it's 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 easy. It's throwaway lines. Yep. It, it was you know it was used in society 40, 50 years ago, and it's a throwback to their parents, I suppose. But it's a sad indictment, and the racism stuff now is just so hurtful. And that's what I always I was thankful always thankful Richie Benno retired as a commentator before the audience had a chance to answer back. You know, and that, that it was never he never really copped copped. You know what every commentator copped, but you're right. Jockeys, young jockeys, get it. You know, and and don't think it's just the the kids either. The superstars. I know Steph Curry in the middle of an NBA game when he was having a shocker, rushed to have a look at his phone and sort of saw all these tweets and sort of almost got him going. You know, so it it hurts. It really does. And I don't care who you are. It does get in. You know, if you read it and and it's pointed, think if there's a kernel of truth in it. If you think oh, I didn't really know that, and then you read something that. So, so it does, but, oh, there's some weird moments. I had this thing where, how I was doing it, I'll never know, but was doing bum tweets where my phone would be in my back pocket. <laughs> I thought that was your six-year-old sending me that tweet crash. Now you've just confessed. And the thing that really offended me, I did about three of them, was all the replies were, mate, that's the best piece you've written for some time. <laughs> <laughs> like it'd be XQZRPZ, and they said, oh, you know... I, Another liquid lunch, mate. You know? <laughs> so, but but it, it's I changed on Twitter when I remember reading that Osama bin Laden's death broke on Twitter, 
and I had ignored it since then, until then, and I just thought this is just... If it's that razor sharp that it gets the biggest death of our century, I, I've got to got to really really tune into it. And when I retire, I'll, I'll probably close down my account. But as a fundamental work tool, it's a very good buzzy little medium. So in that in that I guess similar note, one thing that technology's done is let you know a lot more about who's reading your stories, who's watching your stories. I mean previously. You know, you had to get the ratings in, Patty, for you on seven. Who knows who's watching what, you know, with a bit of a general thing. Who knows who was reading what what page of the newspaper. Now, with the online news, etc., you've got a really good idea of who's reading what, who's watching what. So, I guess for each of you, what are the stories that people like around here and, you know, the things that you come back to because you know there's really demand for it? Well, still in Brisbane is the Broncos, and and you know Pete leads the way on that, so I, I don't think there's any doubt about that. And, you know, the TV ratings will attest that. I mean, I know that there's some talk about you know some shows are outrating the league, but if you if you look overall, you know, you combine Nine and Fox and KO and all that league in this city and the Broncos in particular are still the biggest deal. So in other words. Pete is read and watched by, you know, the majority of people that follow sport in this station. Pete, your biggest rating ever story? Oh, is it Wayne well, Bennett? Yeah, well, I'll, I'll, it's a good segue, Crash. What I was going to say, boys, is it's been fascinating with the metrics that are now imposed on us, that what the reader thinks they want from us and what they actually consume are two different things. They don't even know themselves what they like or they claim to like. Like, they'll tell us, oh, we do too many stitch-ups, we're too negative, we should have more positive stories. The biggest rating story I've ever done in my career was when I had a story on Wayne Bennett and his wife splitting and there was... And there was, it, was an, it was a very emotional piece because I know Wayne well and I had to ring him beforehand and it was a pretty tough phone call to make. But I was accused of being a gutter journalist. It was crap journalism. No one would read it. Within 24 hours, it had 255,000 hits. It's the most read story I've filed in that, in that period. Most stories I get might get 20 to 50,000, 255,000 for supposed gutter journalism. I find most people from our numbers, they love conflict and they love big names. Mm. You have a big name saying something... That's attractive. You have a co- you have a bust up. You have two people in an argument. You have a coach and a player at each other's throats, like Latrell Mitchell at the moment. The drama with Joey Manu that would be rating its socks off because people mm. love drama, whether they like it or not. They love drama. Yeah, and you also find out it hurts you to find out what they don't like. Yeah. <laughs> I, I love writing stories about mystery balls in cricket. No, it's just <laughs> I've been writing for myself for thirty years. Thanks for that stuff. Like uh, colour stories. Don't really rate yeah, online. See, when you were talking about yeah. the, the the lady trainer, uh, trotting trainer who's driven to the moon. Through, I love those sort of yeah, stories. Yeah, yeah. I love writing those stories. Yeah, I love being yeah. a bit creative and yeah. finding you know a few different grabs, not just her, finding people close to her mm. to build a lovely TV yarn about that. Mm. That's all good and well. Yeah, but they still want to know why the hell. Latrell yeah. smashed Manu yeah. and did Warira Hargraves have a crack at him in the tunnel yeah. and yeah. that's what they want to know. Mm. Yeah. And this is just an appendage. It's a nice mm. appendage but it's, yeah. And it, there are certain people that just have this interest for readers. Mm. Uh, Stephen Moore's son, Austin, never played first-class cricket. He would get more hits than an established test player. Mm. Shane Watson, for some, bag him all you like, but people had this fascination with him. Andrew Simons. 
Nick Kyrgios. You, you put a Kyrgios story in, it's, it just goes boom. Because it sort of goes around the globe. Yeah. But for me, the big one was the ball tampering scandal. It was the highest story, clicks-wise, I've ever had. I came in on a Saturday morning and Stephen Smith had just done a press conference and he and Shane, uh, uh, David Warner had just arrived home from the ball tampering scandal and someone said to me uh, that you realise they wouldn't fly on the same plane together, so there's a problem there. So we did that story, the reason, you know, the, the secret button, and that was, the, that was the highest. That ball tampering stuff was incredible, the hits on it. It was almost as if people just had to read it, you know, like I was getting sub-editors coming over, and they've never done this for any other story, saying, nothing else, is there? Nothing, nothing else? You want to spin it upside down? Sometimes we'd start out on this angle at 9am, and at 3 a.m. you'd go, 3 p.m. you'd spin it around. Like, it was incredible, the interest. It was, it fascinated the nation like no other sports story uh, I've seen. And the other thing is, guys, the other issue is as a journalist that the great conflict is sometimes the amount of effort you put in doesn't correlate to the numbers. Yeah. So, for yeah. example, I could make 25 phone calls, ring every CEO in the NRL and do a beautiful think tank piece on the way the game's evolving, yeah. what the future of rugby league is. No one gives a shit. No one will read it. I can then do a yarn on Anthony Seabold having an argument with Anthony Milford at training and write it in about 10 minutes. It'll yep. get 50,000 yep. hits. <laughs> That's the bottom line. People just love drama, conflict, big names and sexy storylines. Yeah. Mm. And, and, and the metrics would be just to take a would be something like the Broncos is everything else, any other sport, by a multiple of four, would it be? Mm. It, it, it's, yeah. They're roughly the figures in, in Brisbane. And that's not me being biased. This is mm. cold, hard analytical evidence because they see, see the stats. Sure, the other sports will peak occasionally. You've got a good cricket story, don't worry, it'll go all right. Yeah. But a similar story, you know? Yeah, look at the things that are thriving around the world. London Sun still thrives. National Enquirer still thrives. TMZs, you know, yeah. they're thriving. And, and sadly, now they're paying for a lot of the stories. Yeah, it wouldn't be unusual for us to get kids phoning of a Saturday morning and saying, hey, I've got a shot of a footballer, you know, having a wee in the street in the back of a, a, a nightclub in the valley. Do you want to give me 500 or give me 1,000 for it? You know, it's pretty grainy old vision, but you guys <laughs> can work it up okay, can't you? I'm pretty certain it's so and so, you know. <laughs> Maybe not with your old cameras, Pat. You wouldn't be able to dress it up. Oh yeah, I mean, thank God I'm happily married and don't go out anymore. <laughs> but you know the other thing, guys. For me, the, the, when you talk about social media crutch, the big thing for me now is the acceptance of plagiarism that's crept into the industry, which I think is a disgrace. But when we started, and you guys are a little bit older than me, but when I started as a young journalist, the the, the, the concept of taking someone else's quotes to build your own story was just a cardinal sin. Yeah. You, yeah. You, were, you, were looked, you were frowned upon if you did that. <laughs> now Nowadays, I can break a story, and within half an hour, three other websites will just rip off the yarn. They may not even stack that up themselves. They'll just go, oh, Pete Bedell's written it. Let's sort of trust it. Hopefully, he's right, and they'll just report it. Yeah. Or and and if there are quotes in my story, they'll just take them. Sometimes without attribution, they just quote them on their own websites, and they draw traffic and get and get money from yeah. sales. So they're monetizing plagiarism. So where do, but where does it end? Where, where what deterrence is there, and how do you police it? That's the challenge for journalism. Well, I don't know enough about the platform, but but I agree with you. I mean, it doesn't happen so much with us. But with you guys, I know it happens all the time. I see Benny mm. Dorries, who I love, you know, he, he, he can be acidic at times. And, <laughs> yeah. I, and I love that, you know. Yeah. But he, he'll give it to the ones who have plagiarised. And, hey, mm. mate, yeah. 
you know, that's a story I wrote yesterday where yeah. you're just, you know, taking it word for word, haven't changed a word and just thrown it on your platform, you know, yeah, please. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. In that nature of things that are changing like that, what about actually being at a ground to cover sport and being on tour? I know COVID's accelerated some things, but, you know, we've got Australian cricket teams playing overseas now with no reporters there. We've got, because of COVID lockdowns, uh, TV commentators calling games, you know, from you know, 2,000 kilometres away. How is sports reporting changing with the fact that we used to always, when we, you know, grew up, say we had to be at the ground, we needed to be there? And uh, that's what we always would say. It appears now that for financial reasons or COVID, it's not the same anymore. How does that impact sports writing? Um, well, I can give you a very quick example TV-wise. We, we rely a lot on VNRs now, so you know, video news releases. I suppose because we simply don't have the staff, we simply don't have the resources, cameras, etc., mm. to go out to every story that's around now. So sadly, and it is sad, that we don't, you know, we're probably costing a young kid a job somewhere, but if Red Bull Holden, for example, want to put out something about Jamie Winkup, rather than us drive to Banyo and sit down with Jamie and try and get a good yarn out of it, we'll just take whatever they send us. You know, and that's what appeal. And then, and Red Bull are happy because they get their, you know, they they get to frame Jamie Wincup with Red Bull over his left shoulder or whatever, <laughs> and all that sort of thing. But there's a lot of that now. You you have a look at a at a typical news bulletin. There is a lot of VNR. Yeah. sadly. Yeah. Well, the big thing too, Crutch is, if you look at an NRL press conference now, I remember a time in the early 2000s, even 10 years ago, you would have 10, 15 journalists at a press conference. Now, Wayne Bennett walks in the other night for the Latrell Mitchell drama. There were two journalists in there, and one of them was from Fox Sports, so he couldn't call in probably a traditional print journalist. I don't even travel sometimes to cover the Broncos. That was once upon a time a must. It, we always travel with the Broncos. We covered their games. We were there on the ground. These days, and it was, it's been precipitated by COVID, but also the... the budgetary pressures now on media organisations, I can cover away games. They will not send me to Newcastle. I'll watch the game at home on Fox and file a report and the press conference live feed is the quotes that you get. So it's quite a sad indictment on the industry in a way that we're reporting on great events from, from our home but while I'm eating KFC. <laughs> but that's the, that's the, that's the yeah. challenge. The, the other thing, Chris, sorry to interrupt there, but for us, for example, for Broncos games, there's not much point in Chris Gary going there anymore. Yeah. Because there is a press conference and he probably, you know, should be at that. But in the old days, we used to be able to mingle then in the dressing room, get a couple of interviews with players and reaction and things like that. <coughs> that's not allowed anymore mm. because the, bro the host broadcaster, you know, say, well, that's not in your contract, mate. Mm. You know, maybe you can pick them up in Caxton Street if they wander <laughs> up to Caxton for a beer, which doesn't happen now. They go home for a Kool-Aid or something. I don't know, yeah. a Powerade. But, um, yeah, so... Yeah, there's, there's not a great necessity to be there because mm. a lot of our tools have been taken away from us. Yeah, and, and as a consequence, I think careers are flashing by without us really knowing who some of these guys are. Yeah. Do, do you know? Like, like uh, you could pick, yeah. okay, uh, maybe Darren Lockyer or someone, but, but just a really, you know, the careers are flashing by without the deep dive. Mm. We, we were talking to the cadets the other day at work and I said, always have a back pocket story, something that you're... We, we're all snatching a little bit at the industry at the moment, but have that one that you spend a couple of hours a week on, three hours, maybe four hours, and then after four weeks, there it is. And people say, gee, that's a lovely, thorough, deep diving piece. And it comes out maybe once a month, once every five weeks, but it shows that it just goes a bit deeper. It'll take your time. Chisel away at it. So I think 
those ones are more conspicuous. They stand out better than ever. They ever have. I hate that, though. I mean, always, inevitably in TV, <laughs> the way it is now with social media, you sit on a yarn, and, and I'm yeah. talking nice little... I did a yeah. nice little piece on one of the young divers yeah. before Tokyo, yeah. and had he had an uncle who won a gold medal for France in the cycling in 56. And I went to our archives in Melbourne and they found, you know, they found a Frenchman winning a gold medal in cycling in 56 with commentary and everything. And the kid had, was a, a great personality and I'd interviewed someone else from Griffith Uni who'd, and it was going to be a nice yarn put together. And I'd, I'd written it and it was just about to go to edit phase and Channel 9 ran it the night before. <laughs> oh, it was filthy. <laughs> Absolutely filthy. You know. And they didn't have anywhere near the quality of vision from 56. <laughs> I think they had a couple of stills. And, you know, and I thought, see, don't sit on stills. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, to be yeah. fair, as much as, and, and I'll stand by that, you know, at the back pocket story, but the internet has taught us the golden mantra, if in doubt, spit it out. Yeah. Go now. Because yeah. you're very, very rarely... Barely ever regret going early, but the amount of time... What, what was the advice I was giving those kids? That's ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> but, 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 you, but what I mean is, it might be a nice feature on someone or, or, or something, but you, I think it still can, can have its place, you know, that sort of... You always said to me, Crash, uh, just be careful not to make one phone call too many. Yeah. Of course, yeah. which is one of the most famous stories in Australian modern cricket writing was, of course, Malcolm Cron's yeah. fantastic story about uh, fines for Shane Warne and Mark Waugh for speaking yeah. with a bookie. Yeah. Um, there was you know, a story broke just before Mal got that out. Is that that's right? That's right. He rang up. He, was, he said to me, I, today's the day. I've been chasing this for four months. And he said, I'm going on a ring-around frenzy. And I think he rang up Dean Jones. And Dean Jones told David Hooks... And David Hooks had a evening radio show and he broke it. He broke the story. And uh, so, yeah, it was one phone call too many. Mal got the credit for it. He yeah. said, and he said an investigation which led to the publishing of this, and that was 100% true. But, yeah, it's that balance. How many calls do you make? You know, because we live in a very chatty world. So, final predictions we've got an Olympic Games in Brisbane in 2032. So, we're 11 years away. <laughs> What's sports writing like in 11 years' time? And we've got the greatest sports show we'll ever have in this city. What's sports writing like then? Well, these two will be retired. They won't give a shit. They'll be gone. Can I say I don't care? (laughs) (laughs) I'm just happy to sit back and read what he's writing. (laughs) Pat and Crash will be carrying the flame together, fighting down Caxton Street. Sports writing to me in that year will be reading reading online with hot milk and arrowroot biscuits. (laughs) And someone saying, wipe your chin, Grandad. Well, look, I think as someone who has to care because I'll still be paying off my mortgage at age 57. Uh, look, I think uh, the immediacy we will be out, outrageous. I mean, I can't imagine. I, I think you'll have instant... The results will be instantaneously online. Mm. Um, I think I think there'll be a lot in the digital space. I think the ability to connect with audiences is something even beyond my understanding or IQ. I think there'll be a next generation of, of people and who are digitally focused and equipped to disseminate information in a way I don't think we ever could now. So who knows what platforms yeah. will be designed, but I think the ability to work capture audiences and keep them keep them locked in and entertained, it'll it'll be tenfold on what we have today. Well, see from Tokyo, we had channels apparently <laughs> I, you know, I couldn't find them, but, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but we had channels where you could watch every sport. Yeah. So 
it's very interesting. These these rights haven't been negotiated yet. In fact, I'm not even sure Paris has been done yet. Mm. Uh, you know, we, we've just finished Tokyo. Um, don't take that as gospel. Yeah, Paris but hasn't been done yet. Yeah, <coughs> so, so you've got Paris, LA, but I understand just the negotiating rights for all these digital platforms is pretty much the way they're going to go. It's going to be interesting to see what NBC does because NBC... You know, have paid around about a billion dollars. I mean, let's just put a you know a, a ballpark figure on it. But their figures weren't all that good. I know time differences come into it and all that sort of thing. I don't think they were overly happy with their Olympic figures this year. So it's going to be it's going to be very interesting to see where it is in eleven years' time as to how we cover a game, you know an event of that magnitude and and what it will look like on our screens of our whatever we're watching mm. in those days. Well, as I said, it won't worry Crash and I. We'll be having <laughs> the, the milk arrowroot biscuits or, or something. You know. yeah. even, even, guys, the forensic analysis of sports now, like even the recent Olympics just gone, I was fascinated by when you watch the 100 metres, the, the statistics they gave you about breakdowns through the race of the kilometres an hour they were running at particular segments. So 10 metres, 20 metres, 30 metres, you had the kilometres an hour for each sprinter there in a graphic on screen. You go back to the 80s and you look at 1984 at LA, you look at the basic clunky graphics you were given it was ju- it's just astronomical isn't it so imagine in 10 years time i think there'll be a much greater breakdown and a forensic analysis of athletes performances how they're measured what their heart rates could be i think there'll be a lot more deep dives into yeah. athletic but, performances yeah but what you got to remember crutch is that it still won't change the basic tenet of journalism mm. people will still want to know why mm. he won the 100 meters mm. And what's his backstory? And is his mother and father still alive? And has he got brothers and sisters? They'll want to know that. The way they get it disseminated to them will probably look completely different to the way we do it now, mm. free to air and all that sort of thing. But they still want to know the story. Mm. And someone's got to tell that. And I think it'll be the best time ever to be a Queensland sports journalist. With so many of these sports coming to Brisbane, you'll be able to go out to Nudgee and, and shake the hand and spend 15 minutes with with the next generation, Ash Maloney, who sits down there and no one's interviewed him for four months and he, he tells you about three things that you, you know, you, you've never heard of before. It'll be some young kids, I hope, it just puts wind beneath their wings and uh, inspires the next generation because they could have the time of their life. And a guy who we should never forget too when there's Olympics in Brisbane is Paul Malone, yes, who was sadly lost, who would have just been someone who would have loved the Brisbane Olympics and would have reported on it unbelievably well. With yep. great insight. Absolutely. All the little stories, you know, uh, he was the man who first wrote Sally Pearson catching the, you know, the three buses to, to training when she was a kid. You know, he was always into the behind the story behind the story and it'll be bigger than ever in 2032, Mickey. We can't wait. Or Pete can't yeah. wait. Yeah, yeah, I can't <laughs> wait. So yeah. I've got a, I think I've got an appointment. <laughs> uh, that's a great note to leave it on. Thanks so much, guys, for coming in today. It's been a real pleasure to listen to you and uh, we look forward to seeing what comes up next. Thanks a lot. Yeah, most of it's the truth, I think. <laughs> <laughs> well Set your Greg Norman story. <laughs>